Draw your attention to Matthew chapter 1, that portion of the Christmas history that is found from verse 18 to verse 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. You know that the name Jesus, or Joshua in Aramaic or Hebrew, is built on the root to to save, the verb to save. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Our Father in heaven, what we want, O God, what we need is for the truth of this history to be felt in our hearts and minds, the glory of it, the wonder of it, the salvation that is in it, that we may look to the Lord Jesus Christ and to him only for our salvation now and forever, and that we might love him as our Savior now and forever. We pray it for his sake and in his name. Amen. I have a few times done on Christmas Sunday morning what I'm going to do this morning, namely tell a story more than preach a sermon in the ordinary sense of the term. We have been working our way slowly and carefully through the argument of 1 Corinthians in the morning and Hebrews in the evening, so I think we can stand this change for one Lord's Day and all the more Christmas Sunday as it is. I want to elaborate in flesh and blood the significance of the Christmas history, bring its meaning home to our hearts. God the Son became a man, the angel told Joseph, in order to save his people from their sins. Now, truth be told, most people in our land and most people in our world are not terribly interested in Jesus Christ precisely because they don't feel any great need to be saved from their sins. Christ came to be a savior from sin, and they don't have any great great sense of need for such a salvation. They are not conscious that they stand guilty before God, that nothing stands between them and his condemnation on account of their sins. But let them see their sins and the guilt that attaches to their sins. Let them see it for just a moment as it really is, as God sees it every day, and suddenly, and this has been true for vast multitudes of human beings who lived in long Uh, for long stretches of time in total indifference to their sins. Let them see it for a moment 
as God sees it. And suddenly it is entirely clear to them, luminously clear, that of all things in the world they must be saved from their sins. That they cannot save themselves. That only God the Son could possibly pull them out from under a mountain of guilt as heavy as the mountain they have been piling up on top of themselves all these years. As the poet said long ago, what comfort can a Savior bring to those who never felt their woe? As the great awakening preacher Daniel Rowland of Wales once said in a sermon, men have need of storms in their heart before they will betake themselves to Christ for refuge. So let me tell you a true story of a man who had a storm in his heart and who was brought to feel his woe, the weight of his sins, and found at last the forgiveness that Jesus Christ came into the world to provide and to bring to his people. And more than that, I hope the story will make you feel the greatness of God's mercy in providing a way for you out from underneath your sins. The great challenge a minister faces at Christmas time is not simply to recite over again the Christmas history, which everyone already knows and has heard in most respects many times. The challenge is much greater, much more difficult to meet. It is to make you feel the greatness of the love that sent the Son of God into the world, the greatness of the power in that great work that he did from Bethlehem to Calvary, by which you, the black sinner that you are, are made pure white in God's sight. To make you exclaim with a real sense of wonder in your heart, how could such mercy be given to me? How passing wonderful is it that God who knows my heart and my petty life should still want and then have been willing at such great cost to himself to secure the forgiveness of my sins? How is it possible that my thoughts and words and deeds and all the thoughts and words and deeds I have never thought or spoke or done have not forever poisoned God's mind against me? And how is it that sin and guilt as great as mine could be so completely swept away that is remembered no more forever? How can it be that a person like me has been promised a place in the city of God, there to live in joy forever and ever? The answers to those questions are what are found in the Christmas history. And to that end, I'm taking you to a deathbed. That it was a Christmas deathbed makes the point only more telling. Actually, I've told this story once before, but it was many years ago, in the mid-80s, most of you weren't here then, and some of you who were, probably many of you who were, were too young to remember it. So I say it again, I tell it again. This deathbed was in Holland, and not so many years ago. A shrill, merciless telephone woke me during the night which bridges Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Drunk with sleep, I staggered to the desk in my study, picked up the phone, and muttered an indifferent greeting. A woman's voice responded, am I speaking with the pastor? Yes, yes, and you? This is the home of Mr. Carmen. I'm his private nurse. Would it be possible for you to come right over? Mr. Carmen has made special requests for you. I know that it is a very inconvenient time, but I am to ask anyway. 
My thinking became clearer. Carmen, of course, since he was very ill. Earlier in the week, I had called on him. Certainly, nurse, I'll come immediately. While dressing, my thoughts were occupied with Mr. Carmen. He was an unusual person. He'd been a widower for many years. An elderly, gray-haired housekeeper took care of him in his home. Carmen was very shy and reserved. Earlier in life, he had been a successful manufacturer, but just prior to the war, he had turned that business over to younger men. He'd now lived for several years, almost like a hermit. During the last while, he'd shown increasing signs of failing health. A lonesome life. And now I surmised that it would be a lonesome death as well. Strange, but I knew so little about him. How long had he been a widower? Now that I was thinking about it, I realized that I had never heard anyone speak of his wife, and apparently there had been no children. I knew that he was a man of sound judgment and that he possessed abilities which would entitle him to a place of prominence in life, perhaps also in the life of the church, but there were objections. He never partook of Holy Communion. During the annual home visitation, the elders would discuss this with him, but in vain. A particular reason was never volunteered, and although he accepted the admonition with his customary courtesy, his refusal was firm. After a while, it was no longer discussed, and his name was seldom mentioned. He and I also discussed this matter privately, but with the same result. For that matter, whenever conversation turned in the direction of his personal inner life, he would become very uncommunicative. His replies would come with great difficulty, and he would stare vacantly out the window at things far removed from his room. For the rest, Carmen was an exemplary person, a faithful churchgoer, honest and generous. During the last weeks, I had visited him occasionally, but they weren't easy visits. His quiet, almost secretive manner was more pronounced than usual. It was a few degrees below freezing, and the tires of my bicycle crunched softly on the asphalt pavement of the canal-lined street as I rode through the silent, starlit night, passing house after house with windows staring from corpse-like eyes over the water. With a strange, weird effect, the bells of the clock in the carillon of the old tower suddenly exploded downward, their peals ricocheting recklessly against gable and tree. I counted the number. The night was almost past, the night of Christmas. In a few hours, I would be standing in my pulpit, and the congregation would be singing with joy because of the birth of the Christ child. But in the house to which I was going, there was another gathering, the gathering of the shadows of death. My thoughts returned to Carmen, and in my memory arose the case of the orphanage. We'd needed money, and I visited Carmen to solicit a donation from him. He would have to have some time to think it over, he said, but the very next day he called to say that he would pledge a gift of a thousand guilders. There was one express stipulation, however, and that was that his name should not be mentioned. The money had been a lifesaver for the orphanage, and no one but myself had ever so much as guessed the identity of the donor. Everything about him was, no, mysterious was not the right word, but nevertheless very unusual his behavior, his seclusion, his church life, and even his outward appearance, which was marked by heavy black eyebrows and a head of thick gray hair. And now he had to die. It amazed me that he had asked for me. Was he afraid of death? I didn't know why, but I couldn't easily believe that. Carmen looked to me like one cut out of different wood, although, but shortly I would know. 
There stood the high silhouette of his house. A weak beam of light shone between the curtains of an upper window. As softly as possible, I rang the doorbell. I heard the muffled creakings of footsteps on the staircase. The nurse opened the door very quietly. How is he? I asked. Quite well for the moment. The doctor says that he could linger for several days, but that it might also be over within a few hours. You know, of course, that he's suffering from a terminal malignancy. I nodded as we climbed the staircase. In front of the door leading to the sick room stood a Mrs. Delotte, Mr. Carmen's sister-in-law. She was much younger than her brother-in-law, and from conversation with her, I understood that she had been staying in the Carmen home for a few days in order to assist with the housekeeping and the nursing. Whisperingly, she told me that it had taken some doing to get Carmen to approve of her taking her little daughter with her, even though she could not get away from home without her. She shrugged her shoulders, and I couldn't resist the impression that she bore little affection for her sick relative, to whose side she had come solely out of a sense of duty. He has always had a dislike of children, you know, she offered. I thought for a minute about the orphanage, but I simply nodded and followed the nurse into the large room where back of the screen stood a bed. It was immediately noticeable that Carmen had failed rapidly, even in a few days since I had last visited him. In the soft light of the lamp above his bed, it looked as if the lines in his face had been carved with a knife, and when he turned his head on the pillow, his eyes made the slow rotating movement which one sees oftener in those who no longer have a will to resist death's encroachment. His arms lay straight and motionless upon the sheets, the hands powerless. Nevertheless, he was an impressive figure, and again I was struck with the contrast between the thickly planted gray hair and the black eyebrows. With a weak but audible voice, he asked his nurse to excuse us since he wished to speak with me alone. After the door closed with a soft sigh behind her, he waited for a few seconds. Then he raised his eyes and looked at me as one who had reached a very hard decision. I began the conversation. You asked if I would come. Can I help you? With the same rather thin but yet plain voice, he answered, Yes, and it is indeed very difficult for you so late at night and with such a very busy day tomorrow. I assured him that this was unimportant. Now that I knew that it was his desire to see me, I would not have called for you, he continued, if I did not have to reckon with the possibility that it might be soon too late. I will not make it much longer, Domine, and before that moment I want to tell you something. First of all, about the orphanage. I have specified a certain amount in my... But you know, upon the condition that there is as little publicity as possible. I tried to thank him, but it's a very difficult thing under such circumstances to find the right word. It's just as if one is personally signing the death sentence of the dying. But with a slight movement of his hands, he checked further talk on my part and said, there is something else. You have not known me fully well, not on the inside. I know that you were dissatisfied with me the Lord's Supper, and perhaps other things. And I'm appreciative of the fact that you did not harshly condemn me, because there was a reason. He paused, during which I gave him no encouragement to continue, something which he apparently did not expect either. 
And then he told his history. There was not much rising or falling in his voice, and yet the telling of his story from the very beginning brought with it so much tension that I could not help but listen very intently, strangely fascinated. I am, he began, I am now 63 years old, actually still young for dying, and yet it is already so long ago. I was married, and my wife passed away when our little girl was three years of age. Domini, he looked at me, you are married, and no doubt you love your wife very much. I did too, and when she died and they carried her away to be buried, it was as if they buried my own heart. I was shattered and numb. I lived in emptiness, and it was cold. Day after day, it was cold. Now, you must know this, too. In my younger years, I was very ill-tempered. I was completely careless. When I was 18 years old, I no longer went to church. My father was already dead, and my mother could not control me. I went to the university for a year. But let's forget about that. I was hot-headed and rude and sometimes dangerous until I met my wife. He stopped speaking. So involved was I in his story that I knew exactly where his thoughts were. An expression moved across his face which made him look much younger. He went on, it is even now a mystery to me that she could possibly get to love me, but she did, and she made of me a different, I don't dare to say a better, but I do say a different man. She was of a gentle character and completely trusting. She trusted me too. She taught me to go back to the church and to believe in the gospel that I had wanted to forget. I prayed and I gave thanks to God and still do it, even though it is, but that comes later. There was a heavy silence in that spacious sick room, as if the shadows behind had joined to listen to the telling of those things out of the dark past. I asked him if he would like something to drink. He nodded, and when I put a glass of fruit juice to his lips, he very carefully swallowed a mouthful. It was very evident that all this was costing him a great deal of effort. His voice was somewhat hoarse after drinking, but he went on. We had a child, a daughter. Her name was Marika, after my wife, and she resembled her a great deal. I've already told you that my wife died when Marika was three. I was inconsolably desperate, for she was the only thing that I had ever really loved, and love, Domini, is a fearful thing. My old nature came back to the surface. I stood in my room all by myself and cursed God out loud, calling him a brute and a murderer. And then that other thing happened. Again he waited. I could sense, could sense that this man was battling furiously within himself in order to get across the threshold of silence that he, had, that he might reveal the secret he had so anxiously guarded and hated. He swallowed a few times and stared straight ahead into the darkness. Our child was dear and happy, always happy, and it was just that which I could no longer endure. That was a sickness, but it was also an evil. I can hardly believe it now, and yet I, his voice dropped to a whisper, and yet I struck her just because she laughed. Brokenly, he continued, I struck her with the back of my hand, flush in her face. I was wearing a ring with a small diamond mounting, and her cheek bled. I saw that, but I did not take her into my arms, and I did not kiss her, and I did not say I was sorry. I simply walked away. She developed blood poisoning and was dead after two days. No one ever suspected it. You are the first one that I have told.
I stood at her bedside, and she smiled at me once more. His voice broke and died away. I saw his lips moving soundlessly. Malika. Carmen. Neither could I speak with full voice. Carmen, you have surely prayed to God for forgiveness. There was no answer. He lay very quiet, and with a sudden shock, the thought rose within me that he might already have died until I saw the almost imperceptible rise and fall of his breathing. More urgently, I repeated my question, Carmen. It was then that he opened his eyes, eyes so full of terror that to look at them was more than shocking. It was as if I were looking with his eyes through two windows into a desolation so deep that no comfort could possibly find place. I couldn't think of anything to say, but you know, of course, that there is grace with God. Even the, I stumbled over that hard word, even the murderer with Jesus at the cross received forgiveness. Fixedly, he kept his eyes on me. Yes, he murmured, murderer, that's the right word. But did this murderer of Golgotha murder his own child? A dear, innocent child. It seemed as if he wanted to torture himself with these last words, and he repeated them. An innocent child. The murderer, Domini, he was saved, but not Herod, who killed the children of Bethlehem. Relentlessly, he kept his gaze fixed on me. A strange pressure paralyzed my tongue. You think I am afraid of death? His, death, his mouth twisted as if in sharp pain, and his words sounded rough. Domini, I don't dare to meet my wife and child up there. It seemed as if everything stiffened all about us. Now I understood. Now I understood the despair of this man and also that behind the despair lay an eager longing, a human heart for final peace. I stood up and walked to the window and pushing the curtain aside, I saw in the earliest gray light of the morning how the naked arms of the trees were lifted imploringly toward heaven. And in my imagination, I thought I heard the whispering of the dying man, Marika. I turned myself about, returned to the bed, back to the beseeching eyes, which though voiceless, pressed me for an answer. And then I told him of Jesus Christ, God's son, who came to seek and to save that which was lost. He knew that, of course, for he heard and read it many, many times. And yet I had no other message for him than the simple gospel. I spoke of a love of God which is so great that it makes a light to rise in Christ which drives away all shadows of guilt and remorse. Yes, which drives away even the shadows which doubt the reality of his endless mercy. What else could I say to him? To him who lies broken on a battlefield and burning with thirst, one gives a sip of pure water and nothing more. And then I prayed with him, and when I had finished, he looked up at me, and it was as if an angel had touched his eyes and cleansed them of all anxiety, of all fear. The curtains, he whispered. I pushed them aside. Morning light stood before the windows. Carmen looked at the dawn and drank of the rising sun. I softly left the sick room, returned home, and then went on to church to bring the glad tidings of him who had made it possible for one to find Christmas even near and on a deathbed. Now, do you believe in that true story, for true story it is? Do you believe it possible for such a man, for such a crime, to be forgiven by a holy God who is, whose eyes are too pure to behold iniquity? who will by no means clear the guilty, who is angry with the wicked every day. 
and to be forgiven after so long. Oh yes, it is possible. God has forgiven vast multitudes of people of all their sins and many sins worse even than that sin. And all of us are guilty of the same sins. Anger, bitterness, cruelty, unbelief. Remember, God looks upon the heart. He knows us as we really are. Not as we pretend to be. Not as we pose. But as we really are. For Jesus came into the world, the angel said. He became a man precisely to save his people from their sins. They had sins, many sins, great sins from which they had to be saved. And nothing short of the incarnation of God the Son, his perfect life, his suffering and death, his resurrection from the dead would ever be sufficient to save them from their sins. But... Those infinitely great things, those greatest things that have ever happened in the world, they can save us, will save us from our sins. They do save all those who trust in Jesus Christ from their sins. They will save all those who will trust in Jesus Christ from their sins. The angel said it. This great thing that is happening it is happening in order that your sins may be taken away from you. In order that you might be saved from your sins. From all of them. Forever. Amen.